The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, if you'd open your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 25. Our subject this evening is the obedience of Israel's stewardship as they brought an offering of materials to construct the tabernacle. Tabernacle, of course, as you know, was their place of worship. It was the place where they met as they traveled through the wilderness on the way to Canaan. And it would be the same place where they would worship God for the next 500 years until Solomon built the temple, and that was about 1,000 years before Christ. And in Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9, God said to Moses, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them, according to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so ye shall make it. Now, in the verses preceding this command, the verses that we've studied previously in these messages, there is a list of materials that God said, you need to make me a sanctuary. Our first two messages talked about God's plan, his uh, plan for the tabernacle, that God gave a blueprint for the building. And in our first point of discussion that I want to review just very briefly, we talked about God who is the God of design. That God always has a divinely ordered plan. There isn't anything with him that is an afterthought. God is timeless. God exists in the eternal now. He makes no decisions that are contingent upon the outcome of unforeseen circumstances. Time is simply an accommodation for human understanding while God sees everything at once. Anything that's formed, any act that happens must have had a, an eternal determination because God is. Not that God was, not that God will be, but that God is. And that is the essence of the conversation that God had with Moses at the burning bush when God said, I am. That's present tense. God always is. And Jesus made the very same point about himself, that he is the eternally existent God. He spoke many I am statements in the New Testament, uh, statements that parallel what God said in the burning bush. He said, I am the way. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. He said, before Abraham was, I am. God is so far above us, so far above our human comprehension that whatever is in the mind of God now was always in his mind. And so if you're saved, you can say that your salvation was always in God's mind. Salvation never was and never is contingent on your actions. The finality of the question of salvation belongs to God alone who works all things after the counsel of his will. So we can be sure that when God desired worship, there was a plan. And there was a plan that was set in stone, both literally and figuratively. His plan for Israel was the tabernacle and all the ceremonies that were involved to typify the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, next we discussed the gifts of the people. God told them what to bring, and there was an impressive list of materials that was made possible because God supplied all of it in the exodus from Egypt. When the people gave to God, they were simply giving back what God gave to them. 
And I do hope you understand the importance of that statement. Uh, and that's why you never need to be anxious about what God asks you to give because you're only going to give back what God already gave you. So God's wisdom then of planning and, and design is a remarkable plan. God works all things according to his plan. He enabled the Israelites to spoil the Egyptians and that's where all of these materials came from. Um, Israel was able to spoil them without even firing a shot. Uh, that's what, what happened uh, to Egypt. Israel actually did nothing. They didn't have to fight anybody. It was God who put his foot on Pharaoh's neck, and then the Egyptians gave up everything Israel asked. Israel, or rather Egypt, gave up its treasures just to be rid of Israel. And in a remarkable twist to the story, Pharaoh, who for so long would not let Israel go to worship God in the wilderness, ends up paying them to go and worship God. Well, it is incredible, but Israel in the wilderness had a fantastic supply that God gave. It's a treasure trove of wealth. And it was all there to make the tabernacle and its furnishings. Now, in the first two messages, we took that information and used it for the purpose that God intended. This is not just stuff that's been thrown into the Bible to uh, fill up space, but rather there's a lesson to be learned in all of this. This, this. this moves forward into the New Testament so that we see in these things that God required, in these stories that are in the Old Testament, that they move into the New Testament to show us the character of God. They show us something about Him and how we are to live, what we are supposed to do. Uh, we learn to trust God in every word that He says. So never look at the Old Testament as a, uh, something that just comes before the New Testament and it's there to fill up the space. No, God has so much that we can learn here. And this, this story, as one of many uh, it teaches many other, diff many other things. This is a story that teaches how God uh, uh, rewards and what God does in giving. That we are stewards of God's resources. And God is always faithful to supply everything that we need to bless his kingdom. So as Israel trusted God with a willing heart and they gave with a willing heart. So that is an example for us today as God's people. That when God requires an offering, give it with a willing heart. Well, God asked for willing hearts in verse number two, and we learned that there were so many willing and so liberal with their giving that Moses had to shut the offering down. And he told the people, you don't need to bring any more. There's just too much and we can't use it all. And that is, again, a, a marvelous lesson for the New Testament church, how God supplies what otherwise seems to be impossible. Well, we've looked at all of that, and now we need to move along to, to finish this part, this part about stewardship. And I want to look for just a few minutes at this list of supplies that Israel was told to bring and give you an idea why these materials. Why, why did God choose these things, and what do they mean to us in the context of the tabernacle? And we learned that each of them is very important for picturing uh, uh, certain aspects of the work of Christ in making redemption for his people. Each of the materials that we'll speak of tonight will be enlarged upon in later lessons. So you will hear this again. And these things are the underlying foundation of, of tabernacle worship. And we just need to learn the meaning of each and how God's going to use them. So you'll see each one of these again. You'll know what to expect. And then when you learn this, it'll help you to understand more about the scriptures and types that are made clear through the fulfilling of antitypes. 
Now, the list of materials then is in verses 3 through 7, if you care to look at that part of the scripture. And this is the offering which ye shall take of them, gold and silver and brass and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair and ram skins dyed red and badger skins and shittim wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil and for sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. Well, here is a quite exquisite gathering of materials and certainly it would have been unexpected if God hadn't made the provision to obtain it. This is not a sanctuary that will be made out of rough materials that are found in the wilderness. These things won't be found there. And these are things that would make this place of worship a place that would reflect God's glorious majesty. Now, you need to hold on to that thought because most of the beauty of the tabernacle was not visible from the outside. The tabernacle, by its outward appearance, was very poor. It was humble. That is compared to the temples that Israel would interact with, the, the peoples that had these temples and so forth that Israel interacted with. This was a structure that, that God's enemies could mock. They, they would say, this is nothing like, like what we have. Our, our gods have so much more, so much better things. I mean, when you compare this to the opulence of Egypt's magnificent buildings... The tabernacle appears as nothing. Now, I'll show you this picture that shows the plainness of the tabernacle from the outside. You look at that and you say, well, that's not exactly stunning. There are no turrets there. There are no spires. There are no steeples on this place. There is no ornamentation to it. But we don't yet know the whole story. Um, we know what others can't see. We know what's on the inside. We know what God put there. Those who don't know our God simply do not understand what they miss. And they can't understand it until they get on the inside. And they'll never get on the inside without faith in Jesus Christ. You see, there's only two ways that you can see the glory of God. The first is to be in Christ. That's the best way. That's the way that you want to see it. To have God reveal it to your spirit, to your mind, the glories of Christ. That's the first way. The second is, is to meet God in judgment. And then there won't be any doubt about the glorious majesty of Jesus Christ and who he is. I don't recommend the method number two. Let's stick to number one. That we are in Christ and we see him through the eye of faith. So the glory of God, that will be shockingly apparent in the last day. And then it's too late to be enjoyed. There is no joy in judgment there is fear and trembling, the word of God says. The fearful and unbelieving will have their part in the lake of fire that burns with brimstone. So those are also important lessons that will be learned as we go through the tabernacle. We'll look at those later. But we very quickly this evening need to move on and uh, look at these different things that are in the list. And this is a listening sheet I recommend that you would hold on to. Uh, you could use this for reference at later time. Just stick it in your Bible somewhere and you can look back and say, oh, yes, we did, we did talk about this and this is the meaning of that particular uh, thing that God asked for. Now, let's, let's notice in each of these there is something to be said about Christ. The first uh, thing or the first uh, commodity, the article that God said for Israel to bring was gold. I think that one's very easy for us. Not hard for us to figure out why God would ask for gold. Gold stands for kingship. 
Gold stands for wealth and authority. Here I've listed that it stands for the deity of Christ, that he is God. God stands for ruling authority. Christ is gold because he is God. And God has all authority. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. And so we're taught in the Old Testament before we ever pick up a New Testament scripture that God wanted people to know Jesus is God. The tabernacle shows this by the abundance of gold everywhere. And so this tabernacle just becomes a gigantic portrait of Jesus Christ. And there was no mistake that when he came that he would come in the power of God. In Revelation, we see that gold relates to God. There are crowns of gold that are in heaven. Crowns of gold that are on the heads of, of, the, of God's people that are cast before him. There are streets of gold that are in heaven. When Solomon built his palace, it reflected the throne of God in heaven. It was ivory that was overlaid with pure gold. So gold, that, that's in the tabernacle. The next that God asked for is silver. Silver is an important part of this. That stands for redemption in Christ. Now you say, where do you get these things? How, how do you know that silver stands for redemption? Well, the meaning is told to us in Exodus chapter 30. If you'll turn there, we can see that uh, Israel was told to bring a ransom price that would reflect the costliness of God's salvation. Re re redemption means to pay by ransom. And in Exodus 30, beginning in verse 12, When thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after their number, then shall they give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord. When thou numberest them, that there be no plague among them, when thou numberest them, this they shall give. Everyone that passeth among them that are numbered, half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is twenty geras. A half shekel shall be the offering of the Lord. Now first, those verses show us that redemption money, a redemption price is to be paid by every man. The price is the same for every person. Whether you're rich or whether you're poor, everyone brings the same redemption price. Exodus chapter 30 puts that price at a shekel or half shekel. And in Leviticus chapter 5, it tells us there what this shekel is made of. Leviticus 5 verse 15. If a soul commit a trespass and sin through ignorance in the holy things of the Lord, then he shall bring for his trespass unto the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flocks with thy estimation by shekels of silver after the shekel of the sanctuary for a trespass offering. Now what we've just read previous to that in the, in the, in the 30th chapter of Exodus, that the, the shekel of the sanctuary is the ransom price. Here it tells us that ransom price is a shekel of silver, the shekel of the sanctuary. So these are shekels of silver and shekels, uh, a shekel or silver rather stands for redemption. Later on we'll discuss the foundation of the boards that were set in sockets of silver. The boards are the superstructure for the tent. And those are set in sockets of silver. And that shows that salvation in Christ rests in the redemption price that he paid for our sins. I remember that it was 30 pieces of silver that Judas was paid to betray Jesus. Judas repented of that. He brought back the money. But the priests refused to take it because they said it is the price of blood. Then interestingly, in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, Peter wrote, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, 
as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now there you see the mention of, in verse number 18, of silver. That seems to be an allusion to the temple tax that was paid or that tax that was paid we mentioned ago, a moment ago, the tax or the, the, the shekel of the sanctuary. So the redemption price is always paid in silver. Of course, that's not a real payment. It's a typical payment. Money never can never buy salvation. So it was a symbol of what Christ would do that he would pay by his blood. Then there's a, a third metal used in the tabernacle, and that is brass. In Scripture, brass always stands for the judgment, the judgment of God. This is really another of the easier ones to decipher. Uh, again, if you wonder, well, where do you get all this information? Well, on the outside of the, of the tabernacle, before you ever went in, there was an altar of brass. Now, some translations will say bronze. We're not going to quibble with all of that. Some say bronze. Uh, but th it's all the same material that it's talking about. And this, this altar that was stood outside of the tabernacle was emblematic of the cross. And the cross is where God's judgment against sin was punished in Christ. In the New Testament, uh, we're told that Christ will judge the world in righteousness. We're told that judgment has been given to the Son. And in Revelation chapter 1, when John saw his vision of Christ... Uh, he appeared with feet like fire or like fine brass that were burned in a furnace. And that would be an allusion to the, to the fires of the altar of judgment. Christ is the savior of the world. He's also the judge of the world. He's the one who passes down that sentence of condemnation on those who, who reject him. And, and, and he condemns people to the fires of hell. And that's something that we do need to know about Christ. We need to understand him in both roles. That not only is he the redemption of our sins, but he's also the condemnation of sin. He is the one that, that judges people according to his righteousness. So there's never a conflict here where we find Christ on one side as the one who redeems us from sin. On the other side, the one who judges our sin. That's not a conflict in the character of Christ. Instead, it pictures both sides of Christ as we need to see him. So there's gold and silver and brass. These are metals that are brought. These were used for the construction of furnishings, of the foundation, and of the framework of the tabernacle. Now, in the next section, it moves on from those precious metals to fabrics and skins that were used to make the priest clothing and the coverings for the tabernacle. Now first, it says there in our text that they were to bring an offering of blue or of blue fabrics, of blue thread and so forth. And this would show the heavenly character of Christ. Blue is the dominant color in the tabernacle. It's the color of heaven and it associates everything in the tabernacle to the heavens above. Tabernacle was made according to a pattern uh, in heaven and so you find that the dominant color in the tabernacle is blue. And that just shows us its origin comes from heaven. God came down from heaven. And if he didn't, we would never, never have fellowship with him. We would never know God in a personal way. So blue is, is used to picture Christ coming down from heaven to dwell with man. And so in Israel, you would see blue in many, many places. There was blue that was sewed to the fringes of their garments and that was to show that this is a people that belongs to the God of heaven, the true God of heaven. Blue is prominent in the priest's clothing which also pictures that there is a great high priest 
who is from heaven, higher than the heavens. Hebrews 7 says, For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. On the inside of the tabernacle, there was a veil separating the two compartments. It was mostly made of blue. And there were cherubs that were sewn into that. The cherubs are angels that are from heaven. And so you see that glorious picture there, the veil that represents Jesus Christ in his flesh, and yet the blue in the veil that says he is God and man. He's the God from heaven. The next color that they're told to bring is purple, and that stands for the royalty of Christ. Now, we remember that these fabrics uh, taken from the Egyptians are very expensive. Purple dye was very expensive, and that's because of the costly, um, uh, the process of, of extracting that dye from shellfish and from plants. It was very labor-intensive. So only the very rich would wear purple, and that's always been associated with royalty. Now, in the story of Jesus, there is an interesting twist to the color purple. Uh, as you know, Jesus claimed to be a king. He was a king numerous times. He spoke of his kingship, and that's one of the things that enraged the Jewish leaders. They mocked him because he certainly looked nothing like a king. He never dressed in purple. He dressed like a, like a peasant, like a common person. And so how could he be a king? And they would mock him because of, uh, of just the way that he looked. He didn't look anything like a king. And, and where he was from also said he's not a king. But when the Romans took him to trial, Pilate asked him, and you wonder, why would Pilate ask him this? But he said, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? Why would Pilate ask him that? Not by the way that he dressed. Are you the king of the Jews? And so Jesus responded to that question. Do you ask that because you want to know? Or because someone else told you this? And indeed, it was the Jews who said, he claims to be a king. And that's one of the reasons that they brought him to Pilate. This is one of their excuses. You need to put him to death. You need to get rid of him because he claims to be a king. And the Jews raise their hand. And you say, we, you know, we have no king but Caesar. Very, very strange thing for them to say. But they hated Jesus so much they would do anything to get rid of him. So they accused him. He's accused of sedition, of insurrection because he claims to be a king. Well, Mark 15 says that they led Jesus away to crucify him, and here's what they did. And they clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it about his head and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. So to mock the claim that he is a king, they put purple on him, and that was a, a stark irony. Here is a beaten down man, a man who apparently has no power to save himself and yet he claims to be a king. But here we see in our text, 1,500 years before, God said, bring purple. Because the one who will come to be your Messiah is a king. He is a ruling king. Through the prophet Isaiah, God said, thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty. And Israel saw purple in a type in the tabernacle. It represented Christ who is the king. Then we have the color scarlet. Fabrics that are scarlet. That stands for the blood of Christ. 
It's another easily recognizable type. In fact, if I had said nothing about this and I just asked you, what do you think scarlet stands for? I think all of you would say the blood of Christ. Using uh, the scarlet cord that Rahab uh, used to, to help the, skies, uh, the spies escape from Jericho, W.A. Criswell said that there is a scarlet thread that runs through the Bible. That Christ's blood from the beginning to the end runs rich and deep in the pages of Scripture. And truly anybody who observed Israel would say, oh, here is a religion that is a very bloody religion. This is a bloody religion. Multiple sacrifices are made. Blood is collected for many purposes, for, for purging, for cleansing, everything in the tabernacle. Blood is the catharsis. It's the cleaning agent. Blood made atonement for the priest and for the people. Blood was poured at the base of the altar. Blood is put on the big toe, on the, on the right ear and on the right thumb of the priest. Blood is put on the horns of the altar of incense. Blood is sprinkled at the base of the veil. Blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat. And so everywhere, blood flows freely. When Solomon dedicated the temple, there was a river of blood that flowed from the temple mount as thousands of sheep and oxen were sacrificed. And I might remind you of something else that you might not even have thought of, that the blood of circumcision was the cost of Israel's separation to God. Zipporah told Moses that he was a bloody husband when, she had her, when he had her children circumcised. Israel recognized the importance of blood. There is no forgiveness of our sins without blood. The prominence of blood, in fact, happens to be an objection that's raised against Christianity. Oh, it's too, too bloody a religion. Too much emphasis on blood. Some say it's so bloody that what we ought to do is just remove the references to blood from our hymns and take it out of all of our literature. We don't need to talk about blood. But I'll tell you something, you have a problem when you do that, and it's because you have to cut the Bible to pieces to get rid of blood. You've got to get rid of that, you've got to get rid of the Bible. And when you do, you destroy the method of redemption, you destroy the purchase price, you take away the blood that, that, that Jesus shed for, for people that takes away their sins forever. So you don't have salvation without the blood. Scarlet must be in the tabernacle because of the bloody character of redemption. So if that red color was missing, wouldn't you say that would be a glaring omission of worship in the tabernacle? To take out the red? No, the prominence of blood in the instructions of the tabernacle can't be missed. Our religion is built on blood. It requires it. Hebrews 9 says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? There must be red, there must be blood in the pictures of the tabernacle. Next we come to fine linen or as it's described in places, other places, fine white linen. And the fine white linen stands for the righteousness of Christ. A few months ago, I was preaching on the priest garments, and I heard that someone said they were tired of hearing about the garments. And I would say, well, you know, there are some who, who will be more tired of hearing about the righteousness of Christ because that's not something I'm going to let go. We're going to talk about that. Our hope of salvation is because Christ is righteous. And that was reflected in the priest's clothing and in other parts of the tabernacle. 
Fine white linen stands for purity and holiness. And there's a double application uh, in the tabernacle. First, there's the righteousness of Christ. And so sorry that I would mention that again if you're tired of it. But it's the, it's the righteousness of Christ. That's why you have it in the tabernacle. And that righteousness is given to us by faith. It's the means of justification. That's why it's so important. So that's the first application of fine white linen. The second would be the, un, uh, the righteousness, rather, of the believer. Our right, righteousness is dependent upon his, that's for sure. But still the Bible says and requires us to be holy. We have a command to be holy, to be righteous. God says, be holy for I am holy. So in heaven, you see the saints clothed in fine white linen. And the description of them is, this is the righteousness of the saints. Fine white linen is also a prominent part of the tabernacle. In fact, before you ever enter the tabernacle, you would have to pass through a fence. Uh, a big fence going all the way around the enclosure that's fine white linen. And that was to show that the way to favor with God is by righteousness. We must be made holy to see God. The priest wore white. One of the four coverings that went on the tabernacle over the superstructure was white. The white uh, covering would be the first one that you would see when you went on the inside. In fact, it would be the only one that you could see uh, from the underside at least. And, and uh, it made up the ceiling. And so in a truly remarkable, consistent way of doing things, God's plan says very, very clearly, he expects people to be separated from the sinful world to be holy. So when you speak of Christ, this is one of his greatest characteristics. It's his holiness. He must be all righteousness and we must be made like him. Isaiah 61 verse 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robes of righteousness as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. Well, we move on from fine white linen next to goat's hair. That's the next thing it says, goat's hair. And goat's hair stands for the atonement of Christ. You'll recognize the references here when we get into it. It should be familiar to it, uh, to you, because we've had many, many discussions on the day of atonement. It was goat's blood that was offered for the sins of Israel as a nation. Uh, the sins of the people were covered by the blood of a goat that was sprinkled on the mercy seat. Now, in Hebrew, atonement is the word kafar. It's a word that literally means covering. And Christ's blood is the covering for our sin. The tablets of the law that went beneath the mercy seat uh, were placed in there. And then blood was sprinkled on the top of that mercy seat to show that the law is covered. Our sins are hidden from God in Christ. In the scapegoat offering, there were sins confessed on the head of the scapegoat. Then that goat was sent away into the wilderness. That showed that our sins are far removed from us, so far that God doesn't remember them. Goat's hair is used as one of the coverings over the structure. That shows that we are covered by Christ's sacrifice. The goat's hair represents Jesus as our sin bearer. That our guilt is taken away by the offering of the goat. And so we saw in two scenes where you have a goat that is sacrificed and you have a goat that is set free. There are two great doctrines 
that are taught from the word of God, the expiation and the propitiation of our sins. Then another covering of the tabernacle was ram skins. And this shows the protection of Christ. In verse number five, you'll see that their ram skins dyed red. That's another covering of the tabernacle. And if I ask you, well, can you think of a story in the Bible that, 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 that's the story of a ram? What do you think of when you see ram in the scriptures? I think most of us would probably think of Isaac. We would think of Isaac on Mount Moriah. That's called the sacrifice of Isaac. But we all know that Isaac wasn't actually sacrificed, was he? No, God stopped that. And, and Moses, or rather Abraham, was, was directed towards a ram that was caught in a thicket. And God told Abraham, don't kill Isaac, take the ram instead. So it's the death of the ram that protected Isaac. And in a picture, in an answer to the type, the death of Christ protects us from eternal death. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So the covering, the ram, the ram skins dyed red. That's another way of showing we are protected from God's wrath by Christ's death on Calvary. The next covering, this is the outer covering of the tabernacle, was badger skins. Badger skins represents the plainness of Christ. And this is the part that I think is really unexpected. We really don't expect to see this. Why would God have them cover the tabernacle with drab badger skins? And there's some disagreement about the badger skins. Some people don't like the picture that I'm about to give you, but uh, they say, well, is that the same badger that we know of today? And some say, no, this is a covering of porpoise skins. That's what it means. And some say it refers to ram skins that are dyed blue. I don't know for sure because I wasn't there and I couldn't see it. But it seems to me that the most suitable explanation is that it is the drab brown badger skins used as the last coverings to make the tabernacle plain on the outside. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the tabernacle paled in beauty compared to heathen temples. Now, I, I think I've made it clear to you in the years that I've been pastor of the church that I love traditional ornate church buildings. A couple of years ago when I was traveling through Arkansas and, and Mississippi, uh, it was a tall church spire on a colonial style church that caught my attention and so I decided that I would go in there and worship with that church on Sunday morning. And when I went inside, the building was beautiful, ornate on the inside. Now the preaching wasn't very good, it was pretty weak, but the building was magnificent. Uh, several months ago, I watched the funeral service of R.C. Sproul at his church in Orlando, Florida. Uh, Sproul was one of those who was a lover of the aesthetics of the beauty of worship. And when he built his church, he, he modeled it after ornate cathedrals in Europe. And that church is just a fabulous place. I think that there is an atmosphere of worship that's produced in that kind of place. And I don't know what many of you think of it. Uh, think of it. Some of you may think, well, that's going too far. Uh, and we really don't need those things, but I, I much prefer that than I, than I do uh, office buildings with blacked out ceilings for stages built for worship bands and rock out music. Uh, I, I like the, orn, uh, the ornate church a lot better than that. And so if we had a cathedral without idols and without altars, I'd be just fine with it. That, that, that'd suit me just fine. But I would have to say, 
it wouldn't exactly match the tabernacle. The inside would, but the outside wouldn't. The outside of the tabernacle was drab. And there's a reason for that. The beauty is on the inside. And it's made drab on the outside to represent Jesus in his humanity. Uh, no one was attracted to Jesus because of his beauty. There's no one said, oh, he's such a handsome man. Let's go follow him. He's such a charismatic fellow, such a good-looking guy. Let's go follow him. Certainly it wasn't wealth that he had that people would follow him for that. So you would never know uh, the, the richness on the inside of the tabernacle by looking at the outside. And so we read of Jesus in Isaiah 53, verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Forget about the long-haired, blue-eyed Jesus, handsome fellow that you see in the pictures. That's not Jesus. Now again, see how wonderful and glorious that Jesus is. To see that, you must be on the inside. And so the tabernacle was made that way. The inside was lined with polished gold. There's an ornate lampstand made of gold that's on one side as you go in. On the other side, across from that, is a table of showbread that's made of gold. Right in front of you, there's an altar of incense that's wood overlaid with gold. In front of you, there's that vil uh, a vibrant blue, that veil that's made of blue, and the ceiling of dazzling white with cherubim that are sewn into it. That's Jesus. His beauty is beyond compare. And when you know Christ, the majesty of him is overwhelming. So I still like that style. If I, if I can go into a building and say, this place reminds me of the majesty and the glory of Christ, I'm okay with that. But with the tabernacle, not so from the outside. Yes, on the inside, no on the outside. Our next, our next article, our next uh, material is acacia wood. I'll explain, I'll explain that in a later message while we use the word acacia. But this stands for the humanity of Christ. Now, if we're looking at the tabernacle, here we find the least expensive of all the materials. This is not something that needed to be taken from Egypt because this could be found in the desert. It wasn't expensive. And it's not expensive because it represents humanity. And that shows the difference, the disparity between human flesh and almighty God. Uh, now, we, we might think that we are extremely valuable, but just remember, God made us out of dirt. Sorry to blow up your self-esteem, but you are a whole lot less important than you think. So wood, that's, that's used in the tabernacle because to accurately represent Jesus, there has to be something that depicts his humanity. And wood is the type that depicts humanity. But we notice that there is... Uh, a remarkable symbolism in this that I think that only God would think of, that there is no wood exposed in the tabernacle. Now, it does have, it is built out of this inexpensive material, but it's overlaid with gold. So you don't have any wood that's exposed in the tabernacle. The boards are covered with gold. The Ark of the Covenant was wood that's covered in gold. The table of showbread is wood covered in gold. The altar of incense is wood covered in gold. And that represents... Perhaps the most amazing, the most unusual, perhaps the most miraculous of all that Christ is. And that is he is 100% human and 100% God. He is one person with two distinct 
natures. He is the God-man. Gold is not wood. Wood is not gold. Jesus is both God and man. And he must be both. And the explanation of why he must be both goes right to the very foundations of the Christian faith. Without it, there is no salvation. But as Hebrews says, we can't speak more particularly on that at this time. Now, I hasten to add these last three. These are not construction materials, but these are commodities that were used in worship. The first of them is oil. And the oil represents the spirit of Christ. Don't think that we need to labor here. Uh, There's hardly a Christian who doesn't know that oil represents the Holy Spirit. Now, in the tabernacle, there is a view of the Trinity. We're taught the Trinity here. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. Oil is the fuel for the light in the tabernacle. And that represents that the Holy Spirit, it is his work to always shine the light on the work of Christ. Oil was used to anoint the priest. And the scripture says, Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows. The oil of gladness represents the Holy Spirit that was given to to Jesus in measure above all others. Oil was put into the bowls on the lampstand. A wick was put into that to, to burn and make a light. And that lit up the beauty of the gold that was on the inside of the tabernacle. There was no outside light. None permitted in. And that shows that God is light, that light emanates from God, and Christ is the light of the world. He shines brightly because of the spirit that is in him. Next, there are spices they were told to bring. Those stand for the sweetness of Christ. That should recall to us the sweet savor offerings. Sweet savor and sweet spices speak of the pleasing life of Christ. His life was one of purity that pleased his father. 2 Peter 1.17, For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so these sweet spices were used in the tabernacle to show that God is well pleased with Jesus Christ in the work that he did. So we're not saved only by the death of Christ. The death of Christ is so important to us, but we're also saved by his perfect life. It takes both of those, his death and his life, because death would be meaningless if Christ hadn't earned righteousness through a perfect life that he would give to us. So he came to live an obedient life, and then he went to the death of the cross. And then these sweet spices also made up a special incense. You'll find in the scriptures there is a formula for a special incense that could be used in no other place. No Israelite was allowed to make this. It could only be used in the tabernacle to make a sweet aroma that goes up to God when it's burned. So they would put this on the altar of incense. They would, they would burn that. And then the, the whole place would become fragrant with the smell of these spices. And that stood for the intercession of Christ. He goes to the Father for us. He stands in our place before the Father. And God is pleased with him. And he's also pleased with us. Because we are in him. And then lastly, Israel was told to bring onyx stones. And this stands for the priesthood of Christ. Now there are other precious stones that, are, that we will learn about later. But in this place, they're only, uh, this is the, the only place or the only stone that's mentioned is onyx. And there are three of these stones. Two of them are, are in the priest's garments. The other is in the breastplate. And there were 11 other stones that were, that were to be brought at other times. But uh, the breastplate 
represents the 12 tribes of Israel. That's what all the other stones are for. But here we find the mention of just the onyx. Just bring the onyx. And I think there's a reason for that. And that is the onyx stones represent one priesthood. That Christ is the priest for all. The stones on the shoulders of the ephod that have six names on each stone, that shows that there is one priest for all. That Christ is one priest for all people. He is the only way to God. Hebrews 8, 1 and 2. Now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have an high priest, such an high priest, who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary, and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, and not man. Interesting, the mention of the tabernacle and speaking of the high priest, Jesus Christ. So here we have just a brief synopsis of the materials that make up the tabernacle. Each of these speak of Christ, the whole structure and its worship shows that fellowship with God is permitted only through Jesus Christ. He's the one that makes it possible to come to God. He's the only way that God will bring us into his family and have fellowship with us. And I want you to remember, you to remember as we go through all of this, that there's always one main point to every sermon. There's always one main point. God must be glorified. God is always to be glorified. And there's only one way that God is glorified. And that is everything that takes place in God's glory, the circle of God's glory, is with Jesus Christ at the center. If Jesus is not there, there is no glory to God because that's the only way we can do it. So earlier when we sang the song and we talk about Christ must be preached to the nations. Preach Christ and only Christ. Here's why. You can't get to the Father. You can't glorify the Father. There's nothing in religion that counts unless it's all built on Jesus Christ. To Him be all the glory. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Well now we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper observance. Uh, For the past several years... On Lord's Supper evenings, I've tried to bring a message that would enhance the meaning of the fellowship of the supper. And I believe that it would be very difficult that we could preach anything that was more appropriate than what we've discussed this evening. In fact, I love these, uh, these evenings that we've had tabernacle in the past year or so, or even two years, where we can stay right here and, and we can do the Lord's Supper observance And not really have to go any further with any other scriptures on that topic. Because we're talking about Jesus Christ. Well here we find in these scriptures that Israel was asked to bring an offering for the supply of the tabernacle. And this is where they would worship God. And they were asked to give it willingly. Asked to give it out of gratitude that they had for God's deliverance from Egypt. And out of what God gave, they made their offering. Now today... We've seen each material represented the Lord Christ. And as we come to the supper, we're reminded of God's greatest gift that God gave, that he gave his best for the salvation of the world. I remember Jesus' words in John 10. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. And I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received from my Father. Jesus gave his life willingly. That is the greatest gift that could be given to humanity. It is by that perfect gift that we are saved. The Bible repeatedly says God gave. God gave 
His only begotten Son. God gave Himself for our sins. Paul said, the Son of God loved me and gave Himself for me. And he said, thanks be to God for His unspeakable gift. So when God asked Israel to give, He he never asked uh, for them to give a greater gift than what He would give Himself. They couldn't give a greater gift than He would give because this gift came at infinite cost. So this afternoon in the supper, we share in the fellowship of this perfect gift that God gave. The supper is about the life of the Son given, the life of the Son given in sacrifice that we might share in God's greatest gift. I'd like for us to bow our heads for prayer. Our deacons and musicians will come now for the administration of the supper. Let's pray and then we'll sing our communion hymn. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we thank you, Lord, for uh, the word that we've been able to look into tonight, see all of these pictures of Jesus Christ and these many, many different things that were put into the tabernacle that showed us all the different aspects of what Christ does in the redemption of our souls. We thank you for him. And we come to this supper tonight with the gratitude in our hearts that, that the Israelites had when God delivered them from Egypt. We come here thanking you for the deliverance of our sins. That that came through the great sacrifice of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. So Lord, we pray tonight as we observe the supper that we will keep this in mind. That the greatest gift has been given. And by faith in Jesus Christ, we have fellowship with you. And this supper represents that fellowship, not only with one another, but most of all, the fellowship that we have with you through this blood sacrifice that Jesus made for our sins. Bless us now, Lord, as we come to this time to show uh, this this ordinance to to our people and to glorify Jesus Christ in this great gift that you've given. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.